Welcome back to Project Outsiders. Thank you so much for coming back and tuning into our podcast. If you're returning, we really appreciate all of your support and joining us along on our journey to improving the foster care system. For those who are new here, welcome to the Foster Care Experience Podcast. We are a youth-led social organization that is trying to bridge the gap between youth and care with their decision makers. In today's episode, we really wanna talk about permanency. Youth in care who typically age out usually don't have a house to go to for the holidays or someone to lean on on a regular basis. We believe that every human deserves to have people that care about them unconditionally and not for paychecks. Typically when you turn 18, you're isolated and alone. If you were truly in a home that viewed you as their own child, they would care for you way past these arbitrary age indicators. Families are typically supposed to be there for each other regardless of what age or what circumstances or experiences they have faced. So why is the child welfare system so different? Today we really want to talk about permanency in the child welfare system. Youth and care experience a lot of abandonment and neglect and isolation which shapes their interactions with the world well after they leave care. The instability from moving around from house to house and the drastic feelings of abandonment youth feel once they turn 18 or 21 leaves a lot of youth feeling worthless. We want to learn how youth view this idea of permanency and their impact of attaining it even later in life. To help us with this discussion, we have Vivian Petruno, right? I did that <laughs> right. <got> it. <laughs> Vivian is undergoing permanency through the Never Too Late program. She connected with her family when she was 23. She has been a pleasure to know and work with. And what she wants the world to know is that everyone deserves permanency and stability. I'm extremely happy to have you here today. I'm so happy that I've met you. It was very sudden. I didn't like <laughs> to give you guys a little bit of backstory. She actually met us through this podcast so fairly recently. She reached out to us because she also knows another colleague of ours, Troy who's also here on our podcast and she wanted to get involved. So she connected with me and she is now our editor. And it's just been a pleasure to know and work with you. I'm so happy that we met, truly. I am too. It's actually a blast coming to the meetings and talking to everybody. And I also feel like that's a big form of permanency for me, as weird as that sounds. It's like, I know we've all been through situations where we can relate to each other. So to be able to come to the meetings and discuss how we can better the child welfare system. It's just so important. Every conversation that we have, we just get it. We tend to just go into so much more deep topics and it's just been so fantastic. And although like we've been working together, I still mainly know you like on a work to work basis. And I would love to learn more about you and your experiences in care. For sure. Previously, when I was an infant, my mother had suffered from schizophrenia. And my dad has bipolar disorder. I initially came into care when I was an infant. Throughout the process, my parents really wanted me back, although they were unfit. I think after like four or five months, they had gotten me back. New issues had ensued. My mom wasn't actually allowed to be alone in a room with me. I think an incident had happened. My dad kind of violated that. I came back into care again. And there was this woman who took me in, I think it was for about a year and a half or two years. Her name was Kathy Colossus. She really wanted stability for me. I I know that for sure. I I have a lot of pictures with her when I was a kid. She promised my parents that, you know, she would look after me and and try to like 
you know, give me a good life, but she was in her older age. And so eventually she realized that she couldn't do it. I ended up going back with my parents from a very young age. I don't think I had that stability. I didn't actually, and still probably don't realize what that would do to me on a psychological level, but I think it definitely changes your attachment style because those are very crucial years, right? Just growing up, I always felt like an outsider. I recall- Did you do that intentionally? (laughs) I saw your eyes light up. (laughs) Um, No, but I did. I always felt like an outsider just because I would see a lot of my peers, a lot of my, my friends when I was really young, like five, six, seven, just kind of looking at my mom because she had, you know, paranoid schizophrenia. And so she would, oftentimes she would like yell to herself and like hit walls and she didn't remember any of what she was doing. And so anytime she would come to pick me up, I just recall my friends laughing. And actually one time in particular, I remember for some sort of trip in school, we were on the TTC and I remember a bunch of my classmates laughing at this guy that was talking to himself Mm. super young and I just felt like I just felt so terrible I'm like he's he's ill he's mentally ill and I I think I was like I don't know like 10 or something but instinctually I realized that they had no clue about anyone with with mental health issues and they hadn't endured that themselves Mm -hmm. and I just remember thinking like you shouldn't you shouldn't do that. Stop saying that because it made me feel small and I didn't want anyone else who could have been in that situation to feel small. We kind of have to stand up for what we see is wrong and we have to do it on a continuous basis. And I'm glad I did that at at a young age. But just moving forward, I, I just remember police officers coming in and like pushing my mom to the floor and handcuffing her and removing her. It's a, it still kind of bothers me to talk about, but um, I remember her telling me like bedtime stories and her bedtime stories were of people that she would see. So she would see this woman with no eyes, no hair, no legs, no arms. And I was so, so young. And I didn't, at this point, I didn't fully understand if this was like a real person or if, or if she was like lying to me or if this was her illness. So I remember constantly, like almost every night being like, is Grigina real? That was this woman's name, Grigina. And she would like, yeah, like, yes, Vivian, this, this is, Grigina's real. She's coming to get us, da, 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 da. So I just had so much anxiety. And I think that really developed me as a person in terms of like having anxiety. Like, I, I think we all, to an extent, have developed anxiety and um, just from our traumatic experiences, but I do think that like a lot of, a lot of dealing with my mom at a very young age had, had definitely amplified that. I remember my dad, this was like when we were in Parkdale, I was super young, but I remember him and I was like sitting on a chair in the living room and I remember him in the washroom with my mom and I don't know what had happened, but he grabbed her by the throat and pushed her up on the wall. And that was my first anxiety attack. I I don't know how old I was, but I was like shaking and I was wondering like why I was shaking so much and what was going on. And like, I I wanted to help, but I didn't know how to help her. You know, my childhood was definitely um, tumultuous and it was difficult. In a weird way, 
I'm like so grateful I've experienced these things because I think I have a different empathy level with others because like if someone else tells me that they have a parent that's mentally ill I instinctually just relate to them yeah um and that's a lot of the time like people people don't take mental health serious like I don't know we, we just haven't come that far yet unfortunately yeah when I was 14 I got into a physical dispute with my dad he had hit me, I fought back, and then he had basically kicked me out and called the police. So I remember thinking like, I'm never gonna come back here. I remember knowing in my mind, knowing in my heart, I do not wanna be here. And I also remember from a very, very young age, praying, cause I knew my situation wasn't right and I knew the way I was feeling, but I remember praying and like wishing I would be somewhere else. Like I didn't know where it was, but I wanted to feel safe. I feel like you're relating to this. So much. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, like, I, but literally, this is giving me the same kind of feelings and flashbacks that I had with Rose's episode when we kind of talked about spirituality and music. I kind of like was explaining to her the situation that kind of led up to me leaving or wanting to be put into care. For me, like, my childhood was very rough, and I recognize that I haven't really talked a whole lot about my childhood yet on this podcast. I feel like I might have mentioned bits and pieces, but nothing really in depth. But it was it was complicated because my understanding is that my mom has a mental illness that is undiagnosed. So quite frankly, I've been able to piece together uh, that is BPD, but mm-hmm. still like um, no doctors have ever diagnosed her because she doesn't think that there's anything um, wrong with her. And um, that kind of has followed me, not just me, but even my brother who was eight years older than me, he went through it as well as a child. Um, and we never really talked about it because, you know, he doesn't like to share his feelings and emotions. And I respect that. I, rem- I personally remember, like, I went through a lot, um, a lot of different traumas and it kind of got exhausting because there was no helping her. And so, um, literally three days before I was put into care, I was in this point where I was having constant anxiety just like you in my bed and I did not want to be there I just knew that like you know around like 13 14 she kicked me out of the house because of this chaotic dispute between her and her boyfriend um like uh, I think she also kind of suffers from delusions and stuff so yeah it's kind of really hard to talk about but like um I remember sitting in my bedroom crying my eyes out and just like praying to God that like, listen, I will do whatever you want me to do. I'll be whoever you want me to be. I just need to not be here. I need to be taken out of this situation immediately because I'm just constantly not safe. The things that had happened the next couple of days was kind of, it happened really quickly and CES came and I never went back. When you said that, I'm just like, yo, this is literally what kind of happened to to me step by step. I don't know if you felt this too. Um, were police involved when you were taken? I want to hear. I felt when like the police were involved, I, it was the weirdest thing. I felt like, first of all, when they came, they didn't know what to do. And they kind of almost made me feel like the problem because like, you know, it's 
my mother and I live underneath her roof. And so I have to respect her rules and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, she's abusing me. (laughs) I ended up having to leave and sleep at like my grandparents' house in Toronto. I was living in Richmond Hill at the time. And so I still had to go to school in Richmond Hill. It was the day before the first day of school, like grade 10 or something like that. And um, I went to my grandparents' house and then I went to school the next day. Workers came after school, like legitimately right after school. And I personally just felt like I I was so confused by the police officers. How did you, how did you feel? Well, I just want to say it's, it's such a traumatic event when any sort of law enforcement comes and tells you like, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna move you somewhere. So I get how that could be like all over the place and just difficult to navigate. It's definitely really trippy that, you know, you prayed, you prayed hard for this and like days later, yeah, you were, you were removed from the situation for the better. You changed well. lives out here. That's what you're doing now. So <laughs> to you. Yeah. So <laughs> I guess that's kind of my repayment or thank you. I was actually going to ask you just like about your opinions on just law enforcement getting involved because sometimes they just don't know how to deal with like people who are suffering from mental illnesses and they're kind of just trained to react and not to understand, you know? Mm, Absolutely. Um, And so I think, you know, even when they handle youth in group homes and so on, it was just like, it was too much. They were too forceful and like sometimes arrogant and cocky. It was just, mm-hmm. it upsets me. And so when, you know, at first when I heard people just talking about defunding the police, I was like, no, we need them. But when they gave like the suggestions, no, we need to basically not be so incredibly reliant on them when it comes to crises and more have like healthcare professionals. And so yes. on. Yeah. I think, okay, Involved. yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Right. Yeah. 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 The money definitely has to be um, mitigated. I I totally agree with that. And in my particular situation with the police, in this particular situation, they were really, really good with me because, you know, my dad had essentially kicked me out. I took a few things like my backpack with like a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and whatever. And I remember just going to the stairwell on the first floor because I lived in a high-rise apartment. And I was just sitting there and I was like, no, I'm not going to, I'm never going to go back. Like the way he, he had put his hands on me was a way that he hadn't before. And I just remember every single time he, he put his hands on my mom and I was like, no, no. And I remember the police officers coming to the stairwell and I was so scared I was going to be arrested. And it's crazy how that was the first. Yeah. It's crazy. that That's the first thing we think about though. Like that they're not going to protect us, that they're going to do something negative to us. Yeah. Yeah. And they said like, Oh, like your, your eyes bruised. Like, did your dad do that? Cause my dad had called the police. He wanted me to get arrested clearly. And I told them the situation. I told them exactly what happened. And they said, um, we don't think it's safe for you to live with, with your parents anymore. And yeah. they took me and for, I think about a month, I had lived with my sister until she just financially couldn't take care of me. She was literally my age. So she was 24 yeah. at the time. She just, she couldn't do it. She was, you know, trying to work, trying to provide for herself at the time. Then I just went into my, to my first foster home um, And that was super far away from my school or anything that I had known before. And I just remember feeling really sad. 
I don't know if it was necessarily depression. You can relate to this too, right? It's just like your whole life is going upside down and you don't know anyone in, in the foster home. You don't know how to gauge people. I remember like first going into the foster home and there were like a bunch of bunk beds, obviously, like we had to share rooms and stuff. And I remember the two girls on the bunk beds literally saying to me like, so what are you here for? What's your story? And I was like, yeah. this is like a movie experience. Like, what? Every single home is the same. I can't even You hear that a lot? It was, it was surreal. I was actually so intimidated because the girls were a little older too. Um, but I was just like, oh, like my, my dad hit me. That's why I'm here. And they're like, that's it? And I was like, I just like turned around and like tried to sleep. And I was like, oh my God, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. They were, they were actually really cool people. That home was a good home. It was. Um, but I think just the way they handled certain things. So I think this, this happens in every foster home. But just the fact that you're sort of like locked out. So when you leave and there's no one there, you can't really get back in. You're waiting yeah. hours until someone comes back and, and like opens the door for you. And they don't care if you're there waiting out in the cold in the winter time, in the summertime, like whatever it may be. And that's like, what the hell? Like, that's not right. That is insane. This, this means that this is legitimately every single kid, every kid. Why is your story almost like an exact duplicate to mine? You know, like my mm-hmm. experience, I, I remember like, okay, so the cops came, whatever. I went to my grandparents for the day. My grandparents' house was, is still to this day falling apart. I want to eventually get to a point where I could just pay for a new house for them because the ones that they have in like Toronto, um, it's just, it's filthy. It's filthy. And I knew that absolutely, there's no way I could live with my grandparents. No way. So the workers came. I remember just breaking down when she officially told me, like, I couldn't stay in that house anymore. But she almost didn't. She almost didn't take me away. It was because, like, there was an incident um, not too long earlier where my mom had, like, pulled a knife out on me and, like, was uh, having an episode and I had to sleep in the bathroom or just, like, run away and just, like, like, lock my doors and stuff like that so she couldn't get in and then just wait for her to leave. I remember, like, so many times when she would have, like, just an episode, I just had to lock myself in a room until she left for work the next day and I would be arriving late to school like constantly and crazy because you're literally like fearing for your life like, yeah that's what it comes down to and that's so yeah nice. and so I remember so vividly so she took me away and then the first thing that like they do is like do you want food you want some McDonald's we can reimburse it and so on like I hear that so many times with other youth stories like the reimbursement specifically or like Oh, no, with, like, them, like, the very moment that get, they get taken away, they try and you buy them food, food yeah. you know, it's to, like, help ease that anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so the home that they brought me to wasn't even a home. It was a group home that I stayed in for a day. It was an emergency bed mm-hmm. case scenario. And mm-hmm. I just remember feeling so just dazed what's going on and like I had to sit down and go through intake with like the group home staff and they had to go through all of my stuff and like write down the color the shape of every little piece of clothing and item that I had on me and stuff like that 
um and the same thing with the group home girls like they came to me and they're like what happened to you like what did you do like you know tell us your story it's like yeah I would almost associate it with like the prison system where like you come in and you kind of have to prove yourself and if you're not at a certain level then people think like okay we're not gonna like she's excluded we're gonna fuck with her a little bit yeah yeah and I oh like one crazy thing is I'm pretty sure that's like the first home that I actually went to after I left that group home it was in Markham and like my foster parents Ugh. Like, <laughs> it's like the best way to describe her. I still don't like her to this day. I remember speaking at an event and she was there and kind of like telling about expressing my story and her home a little bit. And then she went off and started to argue with some other staff members mm-hmm. and say, like, if I see her in the street, I'm fighting her. And I'm like, are you insane? <laughs> she did not say that. She did. And so, um, but I remember and like- this is the person that was caring for you. Let's just take that in for a second. Yeah, she did not care. She she legitimately yeah, said to like the youth that like, you know what, all I see you as is a paycheck, right? Like she was that type oh. of woman who like had locks on the pantry door, uh, feel pantries you. and alarms on the doors and stuff. And um I remember like her just like telling me that like, oh, you, you didn't even go through that much. Like, you know, um, like your story is not that bad in comparison to some of these other kids. I'm just like, yo. That's not what anyone needs to hear. It's like the fact that you're literally being removed from your home and putting, being put into a new situation means it was brutal and your whole life has changed. Like every person that has been removed from their home has already been traumatized so yeah. how can and someone that's supposed to care for you and like be there for you was not supposed to say anything like that that is oh, yeah. so disturbing oh my god <laughs> I hope I hope she's not still working oh she is she oh, is well yeah. maybe that'll be changed soon oh hopefully but I don't think so like I, she's you know she's been around for a really long time and she's always had issues with kids and I don't know why they don't get rid of her and shut down that home. Yeah, there must have been so many reports. I don't understand why, like, this has continued to go on. Uh Uh-huh. Like, I want to ask you, how many times have you moved? Okay, so from what I can actually remember, um, so I've been to two foster homes when I was 14, but when I was an infant, I moved around, like, three times. So a total of five. Within my first foster home, um, it was was an interesting situation because I really liked everyone in the foster home. I, I knew, like, I instinctually knew, like, some things were wrong, you know, like, the, the cabinets were all locked, we couldn't really eat unless it was dinner time, and if we were late for dinner, then the food would be gone, like, that typical stuff, and I remember specifically my, my foster mom just always favoring this one girl, and, and a a lot of us in the foster home would talk about it and be like, oh, like, so-and-so's our foster mom's favorite, and not too long after this girl was adopted and it made everyone feel so small because we, we validated in our mind that like, you know, we were right. Like she, she clearly is the favorite. Mm-hmm. And I think like the child welfare system has to be cognizant of that. They have to yeah. realize that like, why is, why is someone being favored to the point where they're literally being adopted and everyone else in the foster home is unvalidated because they're watching this process and that's not fair. Yeah. My foster mom, essentially, like, she had told me, oh, like, you know, I want you to stay here long term. And a few months after, I had been moved to another foster home. And I opened up to her. I was actually, like, 
I was on like good terms with her, I would say. Um, but when I was moved, I just shut down. Like, and it had nothing to do with the second foster home, but I just remember feeling like I couldn't connect and that I was going to move again just from that one experience. And that's so minute. So I can't imagine people that move like seven times or, you know, go on and on like that. I can't fathom that at all. So from that one experience, I just remember like I was in that foster home for three years and I didn't really fully open up. There was one particular situation where I actually felt like someone cared for me. So I got into this argument with this girl so I had my, my dog growing up was like my, my best friend, essentially, as cheesy as that sounds. And so when my dog had died, I had taken it really personally. And so this girl from the other room, she was mad at me at the time. And she was just like, oh, you're, you're the reason your, your dog died. But like that just completely enraged me. And I was like, say that one more time. Say it one more time. <laughs> I you <know>. feel it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, then like a fight ensued, like a physical altercation. I remember that we, so we had an, we had an infant at the time as well. And he was on the floor crawling and I felt so bad that I nearly put him in danger. Like, or I did put him in danger actually. And I just remember like this girl saying, you see, I'm not the one that started it. She started it. Da, 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 da. And then another foster sister said, oh, you're going to be moved. Like, you know, you can't stay here now. And I just remember crying and um, I remember just like biking, like I biked like two hours away and just realizing I'm going to be moved again. Like this is, wow. it's just going to happen. And I remember coming home to the foster home and my foster mom took me upstairs and she said like, why are you so angry? Like, why did you do that? And like, I just, I, I kept crying and I, and I was waiting for her to say the words like you're going to be moved and she never said it. And that's, yeah. that's when I realized like, damn, I think you care about me. Like, I think you may care about me. But even after that, I never fully connected, but I realized that she did care about me, which had a really colossal impact on me till this day. Mm -hmm. Oh, that is so powerful. You don't even understand, like, things like that, I think more people in the child welfare system needs to understand. If an event happens, if there's a feud or fight or disagreement or an argument that doesn't give grounds for a move. Mm. That means, well, that's a human reaction to an event. We have emotions and our emotions shouldn't be punished with abandonment, you know? Mm. And like, I remember the one home that I truly felt like loved and cared for, but still so distant from was my home in Newmarket, I still remember her to this day. And um, like, she still had such a major impact on me personally. Um, But we, she just, for me, I'm going to, I still feel this way, the same way that I did when I was like 15, 16 years old. She just didn't get it. She didn't get that I was a kid. I needed a break. I needed her to give me a break, you know, and she was very uptight about a lot of different things, very minute, micro aggressive, needed perfection all the time. And I tried to give that to her all the time and it was never Mm. enough, right? And it built up and it became so much more distant because like, I remember I became a lot more distant because I, I, I put in the effort to like, uh, 
open up to her and trust her tell her when I made mistakes and um, be as like forward as possible because she was like an English teacher she was very practical and stuff and um, you know she saw a lot of growth and potential in me and I saw a lot of growth and potential in myself I'm like you know what um, you care and so I, I want this to work I want this to work so I'm going to try and um, even if I was honest with her when I made a mistake or even if I tried to be mindful and aware of like you know making sure that I pick up things off the ground that would bug her like pencil shavings or small little tiny things that she notices and I wouldn't necessarily notice like leaving the lights on or having a shower around like 15 minutes or so you know the end oh. of the world right and eventually I, I noticed just like the separation because she had a son who was around like 21 years old and he I think suffered from some autism or some learning disability. The, the dynamic between that, how she of course treated her son so much better than me, um, it made me feel like crap because I'm like, mm -hmm. hey, listen, you're supposed to be my family, mm -hmm. right? Don't treat me different, treat us equal, right? I can't yeah. be feeling alone in this house. And I did a lot when they would have breakfast and dinner without me or I wasn't allowed at the table and stuff and you know small things and so eventually got to the point where really annoying things where I had to cook for her on certain days and if I didn't she wouldn't cook for me any longer and I had to just figure out my own food and stuff like that it started to get out of hand yeah, that's like like no foster parent is supposed to do they're supposed to provide you like yeah. at least one meal a day which is specifically dinner because you're in school typically for you know, yeah. morning yeah. time. So that's insane that she would make you do that. And I also yeah. think like it's about approach. The fact that she would get mad at you for leaving lights on, literally, that's a teenage response. Like we all yeah. do that. We all have done that. I continuously do that till this day. So how can you like, how can you come at someone for doing normal human being things? God forbid, like she had done that herself. Oh my God. But like, that's the way she was. She was very strict and like to micromanage me a lot. And so I wasn't allowed to use a computer unless I was doing a homework. And so, yes, I would be doing homeworks all hours of the day. But if I want to watch a YouTube video, it was just like, ah, get off the computer. But, you know, dumb things like that. And so mm. I was really upset when, like, you know, I had eventually spoken to my worker about it and I had to leave. I personally feel like we maybe just, if this was the right home and if we connected and if I was staying, if I stayed there for at least a year, which I did, um, what we needed was counseling. What we needed was to understand each other a little bit better. That doesn't, it's not grounds to be moved from that home necessarily right. because like she still loved me and I knew she did and she viewed me as a daughter. And after I left, you know, they weren't able to find me another better home after that. Anything even equivalent to a person that cared remotely. Right. And so disheartening. Yeah. And so I had moved after I moved there, I probably moved about another six or seven times before I had aged out. Right. Wait, so and, from 14, sorry, I just want to like, so yeah. from 14, you, you came in when you were 14, you said? Yeah. And you had I moved, moved like 10 essentially, times. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So at least like two, three times a year, different schools. Uh, right. <laughs> it's just like, sorry, I'm trying to like collect myself. That is so insane. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so 
when it comes to like permanency, we need we need to work harder, right? Because I ended up being so much more traumatized by that constant abandonment mm -hmm. because their first resort to when something goes wrong is to move. Or if I am in a home where they had kind of like moved me to without my consent, you know, cause I just said, I did not want to move to a group home. So just don't, mm -hmm. and they did it anyways. Um, I would run away. I would just AWOL, right? Yeah. Because guess what? Like things start to get very hectic and dangerous for me. And so, mm -hmm. um, yeah. It, and they put you in that situation where you had to do that, which is yeah. super unfortunate. It would be so much more different if there was a worker who literally had come to us to, to any youth in care and asked us like what we wanted, like, would, would we want to be adopted? Would we really want permanency? Is that is like, is that something we feel like we deserve? Like having these real heart to hearts, mm -hmm. that's, that's never hap happened in my case. I don't think that happens in, in any young person's case from everyone I've talked to at least. And I think that's something that we need to look at, like as a society at, in the child welfare system specifically, no matter what your age, an infant, yes, everyone goes for infants. That's great. Like an definitely need stability. Oh my God. As the age progresses, you know, you turn 13, 14, 15, 16, there's basically no chance. Yeah. That's, that's how they view us. Exactly. And, and that, that needs to stop because every single person needs that stability and love and care in order to succeed in life. And we want everyone in society to succeed. Like, why do we see all of these pregnancy rates in the foster care system? Because females literally feel like, oh, I need to find a man that loves me unconditionally. They think a man will solve that. And then they end up getting pregnant because they want that family that, you know, they had never had. Uh, and the cycle kind of repeats itself. And yeah. if, if we just implemented that permanency, that stability, that family-oriented atmosphere earlier, then all of these statistics wouldn't be the case. Yes, yeah. And I think that requires like training. Like you really oh, do yeah. have to like train these caregivers to understand what they're getting into. You're taking on a child who is now traumatized, right? Mm. And so they need to know exactly how can I teach this young person love? How can mm -hmm. I teach this young person structure and stability yes. right how can I teach them like what healthy um boundaries actually look like and oh god right yes. <laughs> and so and so like personally the way that I see is that a foster parent needs to be prepared in a way to they need to understand that at the beginning as they're teaching them these things they need to be strong enough for the both of us. They need to be stable mm -hmm. enough for the both of us. They need to know how to, they need to have enough love and patience for the both of us. Because as a kid who's now traumatized, who's now trying to find their identity and oh, trying God, to yeah. find structure. Whose brain like, literally isn't even developed yet. 
Yeah, we're going to be, and one thing that I love that Kingston said in uh, uh, episode two is that we're going to be trying you. We're going to be, you know, pushing you to your limits and even oh, a little yeah. bit past that to see if you're going to leave us. Mm. And a lot of times they do, right? Yeah, yeah. And they prove us right. They prove us right. Mm -hmm. Time after time. It's annoying, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And so like that one person, like, or anybody really just needs to understand that, okay, where am I at in my life right now? I was having a conversation with Samita, who's also a youth from Karen. She's now going to be like a part of our team um, as like a more financial accounting type of Yay! position and stuff. Oh yeah. And she was telling us, she, and the one thing that she, like, I was having a conversation, we went to like Burt Tongue, amazing restaurant, soup restaurant in like Hamilton. Hamilton? Oh my yeah. God, we have to go. <laughs> yes right everything's closing down on monday though she was telling me about how um one thing that she didn't like um that she heard from some youth was that uh yeah like specifically like on our podcast some youth in like some of the episodes is that they are okay like they talk as if like you know we should just be grateful of everything we're grateful of like the mistreatment or the bare minimum right mm -hmm. and you can't because be. they took us in. We have to exactly be because like, yes, being under their roof. Yeah. Exactly because they took us in. We should just be grateful with that. But no, like, and I'm going to try and like, you know, do her justice and say exactly what she said. But she's saying, as you yourself has become a stable individual and has built yourself a career in the finances, and you decided that you are now in a position to take on an and care for somebody else, providing them with a roof and some food is, mm -mm. you know, it's not enough. And it should Bare never minimum. be enough. And it should never be in your head. And it should never be in that youth head that that is all that you need to do as a mm -hmm. caregiver. That is not true. You need to go above and beyond and uh, allow, help that youth find what their worth is because it's been taken away from us. The foster care system just teaches us worthlessness, right? And that follows us after we age out. Hence why the poverty rates and stuff like that are so high, right? Absolutely. It's just, it's, yeah, it's. It's, it sucks because when a young person goes into care, they already feel so isolated and insecure. And we're, we were all just looking for validation. Yeah. And we never received that validation. And so you go into the world aging out and you're like this like angry, upset, anxiety ridden, like trying to like navigate everything that's previously happened and then take on more because you don't have, you don't have anyone you can, you can go to for holidays. You don't have people that you can talk to about your bad day that, that won't be judgmental. And yeah, friends are great. Like friends are like family, but and like you can have a partner and that's great, but it's just not the same. And yeah. it will never be the same, unfortunately. My personal experience when I had left the foster care system, I remember going to, to college and working. And I remember getting anxiety attacks like nearly every day because I felt, I felt like I shouldn't have the things I did. Like I felt I shouldn't be at the place I was. Mm -hmm. And I think we all kind of like, have developed that trauma response of like, oh my God, I don't deserve to be here. Like, like, and then you're trying to figure out everything that's happened previously and like yeah. digest it when 
you as one person can't do that all by yourself. Take on the world, take on school, try to figure out meals, try to be financially stable, work on your identity. Oh my God. And mm-hmm. the world, like, it's yeah. just, it's, it's a lot. That was my experience for a very long time. And then through the pandemic, I, I just wasn't eating, didn't have a lot of motivation to get out of bed. Like, a lot was going on. So I reached out to my PayPal adolescent resource center worker, shout out to Aspa. And um, she had connected me with this lovely, lovely woman named Aviva. And yeah. Aviva is a part of the Never Too Late program. And at the time, I didn't really know what that was. I just thought I was going to talk to someone and they were going to like help me get some groceries. And it was, it was going to be like chill. And I was feeling really lonely, wasn't really talking to like like even my best friend wasn't talking to anybody at that point and so like talking to this woman um her name's christine i would talk to her essentially every day and Mm. at this time um my brother was um he was moving from a homeless shelter i had to rent a car and drive him and my dad came along and i remember it was just one of the worst experiences i've had because i remember him bringing up so many Um, upsetting things that had happened in my youth and he did it in a very malicious way and so I talked to Christine about this like as soon as we got to his mom's my brother's mom's place and and I got away from my dad I was I was just crying to her she really helped me like she as like an outside source at that time like she calmed me down she she validated my feelings that's all a young person needs at any point and I remember feeling like I was okay to, to drive back and because and, this was like a two hour drive to even get to where we were. It was in Midland and I felt okay to drive back. And then like a few weeks later, I remember I was, I, I was like getting sick. I had a cold, no COVID, haven't had COVID. <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> no, <laughs> luckily not. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Christine really, really caring about me and being like, Hey, um, I want to make sure you're okay why don't you just like come over and um, we'll kind of like take care of you. And I remember thinking like, that's weird. Like, why do you want to take care of me? Like I'm 23. I'm self-sufficient. I've been taking care of myself. I, I think I'm fine. I remember just like me being so scared when I walked in the door and like not really knowing how this was going to go. I, I still didn't really understand the extent of never too late and what permanency was. I remember like going up to like this guest bedroom and just like crying because all of this felt like too much. And the next day I just kind of like cried and like wanted to leave. And so um, she asked me like, you know, why I wanted to leave. And um, I explained that this just didn't feel right. And like, she didn't have to get it. And eventually like we worked through it and, and she said like, oh, I think you know, me and Michael, like that's her husband and, and, and the kids, like, we, we actually want you to be a part of our family. Like we want you to stay. And it was really emotional because I've never, ever heard those words continuously. I've just kind of been on this journey. It's, you know, it's nearly been a year actually, um, since I've, I've been with Christine and Michael and the boys, my, my little brothers. And, I think I've definitely tested if if they were going to really be there for me. Throughout COVID, um, I remember a police officer 
trying to contact my landlord because I still had my own place. And my, my landlord texted me and he was like, hey, like a police officer's here for you, wants to talk to you. And immediately I just knew something was wrong. I knew something really bad had happened. And I gave him my address and the police officer a few hours later came to Christine and Michael's door and the police officer said he had um, some bad news and he, he let me know that my mom died, my biological mom. And I just remember like freezing and saying thank you and closing the door and like not processing anything until a few hours later where I was just crying, where I was like, is this real? Like, how did my mom die? I didn't really grasp it. Like she, she apparently died in her own apartment and, um, I assume that she contracted COVID. Yeah, so it was it was a super difficult time. And so the people that really were there for me and that helped me through that time was Christine and Michael. And I view Christine as a mother. You know, like there, there's so much space for, for my birth mother, but Christine has proven to me to be here for me at this point throughout such a tumultuous time. And you, you know that saying, like, you don't really know someone until you live with them. Like, I feel like that's very true. And I feel like that I definitely experienced that. And my mom's funeral arrangements and stuff, like, Michael really took a big hold on, on trying to help me figure out how the funeral would work and, like, how I was supposed to plan everything. And it was just amazing. I remember at the funeral, Michael and Christine and the boys came to the funeral, and then there was the rest of my family. And they didn't know who each other were. And so this was like the surreal time where everyone was meeting. And I didn't, I didn't really feel like it was the time to explain what had happened because I knew like maybe my, my family would be like, this doesn't make sense. We don't get this. And that was the funeral was about my mom. Yeah. And I don't know. I just felt like my mom knew that I was okay. Mm-hmm. I knew she always loved me. I knew it was her illness that like made her do a lot of negative things, but there was something I knew she that. Yeah, there was something definitely very separate from her illness. And I knew that she knew at this point I was okay. And I hadn't, I hadn't spoken to her in a very long time before she had passed. But I knew she would have accepted Christine and Michael into my life. And there was this really profound moment where they both went up to the casket and they like looked down at my mom. And it was like, my moms were meeting in a way like it didn't happen in the way I wanted it to but like Christine literally had met my mom and she she had promised she had told me this that she had promised my my birth mom that she would be there for me no matter what and she just had that moment and it meant so much to me it meant so much to me and so that's permanency like the fact that she had she had done that meant a lot to me and so here we are now. <laughs> <laughs> Why do I like almost cry in every single podcast? <laughs> it's like a bunch of times. Oh my god. Ah. Oh my god. You need like, some, I, some alcohol. It's okay. This is just juice. This is just No, pink. you're right. You're right. You need some I can't I can't wink. I'm so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is somebody in somebody else inside of my mom. No, I think that the person who, uh, oh God, ah, okay. It's okay. 
Okay. I think that the person who truly loves her children is somewhere in there, mm. but it's clouded by trauma and mm. fear and anxiety and mental illness. And so I never really got to meet that person mm. who actually like loves and cares for her children or her child, like her children, me and my brother, yeah. there's two of us, right? Um, and so that has like weighed heavy on my heart for a really long time because it took me like years to try and find that person. Mm. To this day, I still haven't. And I've accepted the idea that I never will. She is so much happier without me in the picture. She's so much more stable without me in the picture. And it's because I think she looks at me and she sees herself and she sees her younger self and things happened to her when she was younger, mm. you know? So she, you think that she was potentially taking it out on you because she saw that representation? 100%. Wow. 100%. When it came to, and this is like a little bit, I'm going to use the word SA. Do you know what SA means? Yeah. <laughs> I was watching some podcast and apparently you can't say S-A or the R word anymore, anything like that, but. I'll edit, I'll edit it out. Yeah. So like she was like, well, she had her own experiences as a childhood. And like, I think there's so much more to her story that I don't know. Um, and so as myself, as a kid, what I do know is when I was a child, she would like accuse me of experiencing things these things like being as aid or art mm. or anything like that um when i wasn't and um but she had already made it up in her mind that i was and almost like slandered me for it she would call me like a whore oh. like a slut and like you know when i was like 11 12 years old she she might have just been like hallucinating and really going back to that time in her life oh my god and so I think there's a whole story there that like mm -hmm. I can't fully get into yet because I'm just not ready to but no, um in time I think I will be able to I've learned that like she looks at me not as me and not as like an identity like my mm -hmm. own person or being but as a reflection of her her Exactly. or her younger self and um her mental illnesses her mental illness has never changed over the year it stayed consistent the delusions were mm. the exact same 10 years later yeah. it was <clears throat> it, it was amplified that much more too like it was the same thing but like just worse yeah and, that. uh and so it was just I triggered her too much, too much. And so- Do you think that there's like, this is probably an intense question, but like, do you think there's a version? Cause I've always thought about this with my, with my bio mom. Like there's a version of your mom that is well, that's like in heaven or like somewhere yes. that's like looking down on you, that like loves you and just wants you to be okay no matter what. Yeah. I think that will be her, like when she passes away or maybe I'm not sure if like her spirit is separate and like there's two people, but like, I think it's in her right now, but yeah. it won't be released until she passes away, like mm -hmm. in my head, you know? Yeah. And so like, I accept 
that like I won't have a, a relationship with her. My dad was just never mm. the picture, so I don't even like have that much emotions towards him. I just mm. get upset when he tries to re-enter my life, you know? Because mm. like I met him when I was around like maybe nine years old. And then he left wow. again when I was 12, right? And then not until like last year did he make contact with me almost like 10 years to like the dot I, I hate that like sometimes like he, him in particular he just satisfied not just him him and my my brother's dad just satisfies the stereotype that our fathers are never in the picture it's so frustrating so frustrating i'm like god damn it why does it have to be true for me right yeah like so, why are you the victim of this circumstance yeah i know i feel like i really really relate to what you're saying for sure with your mom I remember when I was really young I think I I had mentioned like I was on this like youth poetry team but I remember like writing this poem about my mom and I was like writing about how like she's never been there for the period talk for me she couldn't really convey what that was or she's never been there to talk to me about like sexual health or like my partners or whatever else like maybe she'll be there for my wedding day. But I always knew that she wasn't going to physically be there. But like there was something else that would be there that cared about me, regardless if she was alive or, or not alive. And yeah. so like when I th- when I hear you talk about this, I know and I feel that same intense emotion that you feel. You know, I know your mom loves you and cares about you. It's just it's yeah. it's so difficult with her illness. And it's so hard to to dismantle both of them because like this person is doing something really negative to you and you know it's this person that's supposed to love you and so now you have to like remove this mental health issue from the person itself and it's like when you're a kid it's so difficult to to see you know black and white versus like gray yes yeah there's one thing that like I wanted to mention so going back to like my conversation a little bit with Samita yesterday She was telling me about this book that she was reading called The Bluest Eyes. And basically it went through like this young girl's life or her story and like um, a lot of the different terrible things that had happened to her when she was like growing up and stuff. And then it also went into depth of each of the lives of the people who surrounded her and impacted her in some way. And so it kind of like, you know, when you read her story, you get angry and mad and frustrated around like, you know, maybe her dad, her uncle or whomever and just be like, how could you do such a thing? You're evil. You're a bad person. And then you hear their story. It's kind of just like, uh, it makes sense. Because of what they went through themselves. Yeah. It's kind of like, ah, like I can't really be as upset with you definitely like check out the book. I think I'm pretty sure it's called like the bluest eyes. And it kind of went into like historical things like blackness and stuff and um I took that and I really did apply the same thing to my life right um way before I haven't even read the book yet but I've done it a lot earlier in life is that like I now understand your story for sure and I understand why my life had to be the way it was Mm -hmm. but I don't excuse it I don't excuse your behaviors because the the things that my mother had done to me as a child was just terrible. I was 
I was terrified of my mother for the longest time. Every single time. And I remember this so like discreetly. I remember like always going to like bed late, watching like tree treehouse, 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 tree house, yeah. <laughs> treehouse at like night and like quite frankly, Treehouse at Night is kind of sketch. Like, there's some puppets that are weird. (laughs) I remember when she would call from downstairs, um, because we lived in an apartment building. The apartment building was called, like, the Crack Towers. Stuff went down in that building in itself. (laughs) Um, But when she would call, ring up to be let in through the front door, we had to, like, press a number. I remember just always running to my room and pretending like I was sleeping and just letting my brother let her in constantly sometimes i would just go to bed early and actually be asleep but sometimes she would just come into my room and knew i wasn't sleeping it would just wake me up and crap always i was always afraid of her for the longest time until i actually had like enough like manpower to start Mm. fighting back like it didn't have to be that way like she could have at least recognized within herself that you know there is an issue or at least make the effort to try and seek help, to Mm -hmm. seek a better relationship with not only her, but other people in her life, because it was Mm -hmm. always, always her against the world with her mother, her father, her siblings, her clients, as like, because she worked as a masseuse, and I would always hear her on the phone, just screaming at people, Mm -hmm. scared. Like, if people were walking behind us, she would, like, force us to like, so she would like make me step to the side and we would just wait for them to pass and she would just give them a dirty look and stuff. And she was always scared, always, right? She definitely had a lot of trauma. And a lot of the time, like I know this for my mom as well, she didn't know she was sick. Like you could tell her to, we were blue in the face, but like she didn't understand that she was sick. She, She actually didn't remember the things that she had done when she had an episode. And that's, like schizophrenia at its time, like that is, that is delusional. It isn't her as a person because I've heard great stories of when she was younger. And I'm sure your mom has amazing stories of when she was younger too. And when she wasn't like this, but trauma can come out at any time. And unfortunately that's how it manifested. And it, it definitely sucked. In in one of the questions you you were going to mention homelessness, like if I've ever experienced homelessness, whatever, And I personally haven't, but my mom has been homeless. One time when the police took my mom away, they put, they, I didn't know this at the time, but they put her on the street. And so just a couple days ago, this is so crazy. I heard this woman who was on the street and she was obviously like mentally unstable and she was screaming and she was screaming that people were coming together. And I felt so bad in the midst of a pandemic, this woman was outside homeless. And I literally connected it with my mom because the reason why my mom had to come back was because no shelter would actually take her because she was having these violent outbursts. That woman that I heard on the street, I literally knew in my mind that's the way my mom was. She was literally like sitting there screaming at the top of her lungs, thinking she sees this person that she doesn't. And it sucks that our, our, our system in general doesn't help people that have these crucial mental health issues to its fullest or even like minutely like there's there's truly no system set in place because everyone as soon as you hear schizophrenia bipolar personality disorder whatever it may be people disassociate people like want to remove it they they want to pretend like it doesn't exist oh it's too much to talk about like no we need to have the discussion so we can try to come up with the solution for it because no one should live like that it's not their fault 
Like, how are we going to improve this now? Exactly. What do you think that society or these sectors need to do to better support people suffering from mental health and so on? I think structurally try to support them on their own basis. So if they're screaming and if there are violent outbursts, what's something that can be, in, be put in place before getting them back out on the street? Like, is there another place they can stay? Can they go back to the hospital to be remedicated? Can they talk to their psychiatrist? Like, why is the first inclination? Let me just throw them on the street because they're no use for society. So I think there are a lot of things that can be done. It's just like, it's, it's a hassle and it's financing that, that the government has to put in place. It's an extra step. And I don't think we look at a lot of people that have these severe mental illnesses as worth it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like just regular people. And they are regular people that have had a life before, just like veterans have. And because yeah. they've developed PTSD or whatever else, they're looked down upon and that's bullshit. You know, who fought and like literally abided by like leaders and like people whoever in the military who told them to do these things and experience these things and sometimes they did so willingly but it's traumatic and to know that your country can turn your back on you after you risk your life like that it is awful it is disgusting disgusting yeah it is about it there's so many things that can be done about it so then like why aren't there that's that's really the big question is it capitalism yeah we need to get to the to the place where like people want to have more discussions about about mental health and yeah. about imputing better systematic change mm -hmm. i'm personally trying to piece together like what what does it take to change somebody you know like, like people who are suffering from mental illnesses people who um are struggling um with addiction what does it take to change their life to change their perspective mm. that's one thing that i've battled with for a really long time i hear you and it, like i personally feel like i've invited and i've tried to like uh support so many people so many youth in the past who are just mm. struggling because like i heard their story i know their story i know the traumas that they went through and i get mm. it i get it and i'm I personally view myself as one of the strong ones who just fully sees the world the way that it needs to be seen in order mm -hmm. to take advantage of it and create a life that you've always dreamt of. Mm -hmm. And to try and to explain that to another person who is currently in a crisis, a, a place where I once was, is the hardest thing. And I constantly go back to workers. I'm constantly asking around, like, how? Do I help? And the response that I get is that you can't help them, right? You can't change them if they don't want to be changed. That's like a certain perspective, but I think that's like, to be honest, a little bit of an ignorant perspective because again, like everyone goes through something to develop the issues they have, whether it be like a drug addiction, narcotics, a mental health condition. There are things that have happened prior. So how do we get to the root of that? Do we start therapy? Can we can we put things in place where the where the young person feels like they have room to breathe, mm -hmm. where, you know, they don't have to worry about where their next meal is coming from. They don't have to worry about like, is my boyfriend going to beat on me? To, like young people, as soon as they get out of out of the child welfare system, it's like, what do I do now? And honestly, they just need like the support to be able to sit down, relax and get clarity on their own life so they can actually have the 
self-awareness to move further. Because like, again, in my case, as soon as I got out of care, I had a lot of anxiety. I, I just like, I knew I was doing okay, but it was a lot for me. And luckily that's all that had happened in my personal experience and a lot of other people's experiences, it's much worse. And so they need that time to be able to grieve, to process everything that's happened before and get to a better place. So I don't think it's like, you can't help them. I think they just need like, again, that stability, that permanency, that place where someone will understand them, whether it be, yes, it can be a healthcare professional, but it would be so great if they had someone that loved and cared for them unconditionally through their bad and their good. I love that. I I just agree. I just agree. What I needed in my darkest moments was I needed somebody to take over. I needed to not have to be strong anymore, right? I wanted to be weak and I just wanted to be safe. I could Mm -hmm. be weak and I could be in it, miserable, whatever, but I could be safe in my weakness to allow myself to process my experiences and then slowly grow up again to who once was or who I am capable of being yet Mm -hmm. again. And so I 100% agree with that. And what I also needed was somebody to just prove me wrong. Yes. Prove me wrong. Prove me that that you'll be there. They'll be there for you no matter what. And it's not about them. It's not about pleasing them and their emotions. It's not about like this love and affection is temporary. Mm -hmm. Everything in my life, any kind of stability is just temporary. And it's for them, not for me. It's like, I I remember these words that people used to say to me, even like group home staff, like they'd be like, after all I have done for you, you know, after everything that we have done, you should just be grateful. You should just shut up. Yeah. Because like, seriously, if we, if we look at it properly, like what have you really done? Your job, you're being paid to do a job and you've done that. Like, what else have you done for me? Really, like, that is manipulation at its finest, and no one should say that. Like, and it sucks because, you know, we had the advocacy office. We had things set in place, and now we've come, we've just gone back, like, 20 years. You know, we had, I don't know if they still have this, but the the book of rights and responsibilities, and I didn't really understand it. I don't think a lot of young people, like, truly understand it because we're not fully explained on it, but yeah, I think we knew that like if something was wrong we could call a lawyer like at least we knew that yeah now it just feels like i don't know how how young people in care are being treated if they're being treated poorly i i just hope to god that there's better training i don't know if there actually is but i mean project outsider hopefully will be that place where it can come in and and create that dialogue yeah i'm trying i'm really <laughs> trying i'm telling you why you're doing so much I, I just think that people we don't understand each other fully yet and right now what we're doing right with those podcasts is we're just trying to get you to understand us you mm-hmm. know in our experiences and our perspective and enlighten you for sure in order for us to progress we need to fully be able to understand this system, their perspective, their experiences, what their capacity is and why they're constantly restricted. And there's so much that youth and care don't know. And this podcast in itself has done a lot to, for youth already because there's been youth still who've reached out to me, right? And said that, hey, I need your help. 
I've been listening to your podcast. Please help me. And they were in care. We're doing things. <laughs> you know, we're helping people. Yeah. yeah. A mentor and a leader in the child welfare system because yeah. that's amazing but, that young people that are in care feel like they can, you know, actually contact you and, and trust you. And you've built that because they've listened to your podcast. Like, but what I hope this eventually could be is a tool for like youth to learn how to advocate for themselves, mm. to know exactly what to do and where to get resources and information. It's just something for youth to build confidence in their voice that has mm. been taken away from them. I feel like it'll happen sooner than later because now yeah. people are really starting to realize how big this impact is. And what potential it has. You know, yeah. but that is permanency. Permanency for one, yes, is the stability that's surrounding you. But for me, and what where I have found permanency was in myself, how I was able to actually rely on myself and my resilience and my strength, and but still know that like the people who I'm connected to in my network and the friendships that I've been able to build through my own stability and stuff, like they have my back. They're here for me. And if I fall, they will catch me. Project Outsiders right now, it, I want it to be a form of permanency for youth in care mm -hmm. because like we're youth in care, we get it. And we know what it's like to be abandoned. And so we would be a lot less reluctant to like abandon each other you know, oh or God. at least Project okay. Outsiders won't abandon you, you know, Project Outsiders, yeah. it's its own entity, it's trying to be its own person right now. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like, everyone that I've met in Project Outsiders just has provided, it's gonna sound cliche, but like, good vibes, like, I've <laughs> always felt, like, supported, and that I can say what I want to say, and there's no judgment, like, if I, if I say something in a meeting or whatever, like, when I was telling you guys about permanency and NTL and all of that previously, like I felt good about that because because of, of the lived experience that in a way we've all shared and we don't judge each other. Like when you're a youth from care, you've been through so much, you've seen so much, you've heard so much. It's like nothing can really impact you in a way where you're like, oh my God, like that's so crazy. How dare you or whatever it is. Like you're like, oh my God, let's try to work on how to fix this. Or like, yeah. I hear you. That's all you need like I get it I hear you I'm here for you like and that's what it is and that's what Project Outsiders is versus like when a worker or like a, a even like a psychiatric nurse or somebody in the field says like I understand you um, I get you it's different from when like a youth says it it is it's almost like we're able to like just read each other's minds a I was bit. gonna say telepathy yeah that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking oh my god so a few more questions, I guess, before we wrap up here, um, if you're okay with that. Just because of how like the system is changing because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I know you've already talked about like the Never Too Late program and you've like aged out of the system. You've been able to find permanency in a home that's separate from the system. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds very similar to like this whole idea of like this readiness-based system mm. um, with like Using Care Canada and OCAC, what they're currently building. Do you think that the children's aid society should just get rid of these like arbitrary age indicators and replace it with this system that 
is solely around whether a youth is ready ready to be on their own right oh my God. yeah no i i would say absolutely like instead of instead of a chronological age like that's that's honestly like bs to me and i think to a lot of people just cuz age doesn't as we say age doesn't define maturity age doesn't define sufficiency and so like can we look at if, if this young person knows how to actually make a meal for themselves, do laundry, do their taxes, go to school, be on time, time management, like all of these things that a young person would learn if they had a support system in place, which typically you think or don't. So, I mean, like, are we, look at, are we looking at young people from care on a developmental basis? Yeah. Like, where are they? They've been through so much trauma. Like, are they functioning at their age or are they functioning like emotionally at like a six-year-old because they've just been through so much and that's completely yes. fine if they are let's work on and see how we get them to the place where they know and we all know that they can be so mm -hmm. I totally agree I think that that the chronological age is again bs and i think the readiness indicators are something that we're moving towards and i think it's an amazing idea and like i know another aspect of like this whole readiness-based system is that the in which i personally found interesting and i've asked a couple of youth already is that like they're trying to also be open to inviting youth who who have already aged out and um bring them back into care um, and so that's kind of got me thinking right like, is that a good idea? And if so, oh. would you yourself go back into care <laughs> if you had the option? Oh my God, that I feel like is such a crazy question. Like, that is a really good question. I, okay, so I think, what would the atmosphere be like? Is it gonna be like a group home setting? Like, you, you described it perfectly. Like, will you feel safe? Will you feel supported? Will you be manipulated? Like, yeah. like will people constantly tell you, like, look what I've done for you, da 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 da. Mm -hmm. um, will, will, will there be locks on pantries? Mm -hmm. will, like, what can we do to actually improve the system? Will there be one-on-ones with, with the foster parent to make sure that the child actually, or the youth feels validated? because that was never my experience. Like, why don't we talk to the young person and make sure that they get one-on-one -on -one time? Why don't we get them a tutor? Why don't we put them in, in something that they really enjoy? Like, like, I don't know, soccer, like get them a lesson of like an instrument or something. Like there's so much that we can do to make young people from the child welfare system feel like they are a normal young person whenever a young person is from care, they always feel less than, never feel like they are the same as everybody else just because we've had less. Let's move to a place where we feel like we're in the same, in the same boat, like it's an equal playing field. Yeah. And so personally, I don't think I would go back because I don't think we could do all of that work in the next five years. I think it's going to take yeah. a long time. And I think like, we're all really willing to do the work and have the dialogue. And I hope it yes. gets to the right place. But personally, I don't think I would go back. But I do think it's, it's a step in the right direction that, that the child welfare system themselves are trying to fix their wrongs. Like that's, that's great in retrospect, in dialogue. The idea that, yes, we need to like just fix like the issues that's currently within the system. I think they just need to understand better what's going on within the home behind closed doors, mm. right? Because- More training, like, like you've said before too. Yeah, but also oversight, accountability. 
that mm. is really missing and that is really important because that is the whole idea of protecting kids in care right yeah. you are supposed to be their caregiver their guardian and like so to do that you should be supervising their well-being and if they're actually in a better state than they were when they first entered a yeah. lot of the times they're not absolutely and and believe the youth when a youth tells you that they don't feel okay that they don't feel safe or or wanted believe the youth over the the guardian supposedly like mm -hmm. why do we always put trust in an adult, adult. over the over the young person yeah like, it boggles my mind there's definitely been times where i've been so incredibly taken advantage of where i have been like hurt whatever abused neglected you know the whole works and it was never documented because it's the adults that are documenting it it's not documented because they take the adults words over it and yeah. so obviously and that's the whole thing going back to like these privacy issues and having access to your files it's all like a lot of the times what's oh. in the files is just primarily what is wrong with the youth right the, oh this youth God. In, a, in an aggressive way right and have you gotten your file no not yet I, have you i have in the past few months i've gotten it and i could not finish reading it it was such an emotional journey i am probably not gonna finish reading it like i think i got to page 18 there's like your your file is gonna be insanely huge like several hundred pages for sure and it's a lot because it is it is the adult's perspective and it's what they think and oftentimes it makes you feel worthless and look worthless. That's, exactly. that's just the way it's depicted, unfortunately. And it follows you. That yeah. follows you after you right. age out. Right now, I know there's some laws being put into place where like it won't follow you any longer. It has the potential of just being completely destroyed. And I think that is an amazing, brilliant, absolutely necessary idea because like a lot of what's inside these documents, they're they're sanitized. They are just um, fully biased opinions um, that is constantly uh, just, you know, put together to help the overall optics of the agency. Yeah. And it's just, it's so bad. Like the system is just so corrupt. And, and it is corrupt. It is corrupt. And it's like, unfortunately, it is like this. Like if your foster parent isn't getting along with you and you do something, then it will be put on file, but it's like they haven't gotten your story as well. Like I, I remember this specific scenario where me and two of my foster sisters, they were older and there was apparently a party and I was invited to it. And I was like, oh my God, my older foster sisters are going, like I'm gonna sneak out too. Mm -hmm. So we all went out and we went to this like abandoned house. It was really sketch and there was like, a bunch of like older guys like we were I was personally 14 and my foster sisters were like 16 I think at the time and there was just like a bunch of guys there no girls abandoned house so creepy and so um one of the guys was you know trying to get me to go upstairs with him and I just kind of freaked out I was 14 I ran away started crying called the police and so me and another foster sister had the police escort us home and when I was reading my file, it depicted me to, me to look like this terrible person that didn't call the police, that I was like found by the police and brought home. I was just so upset by this. I was like, yeah. are you kidding me? Because 
like you know what had happened and I can't believe you had twisted it to make it look like something it wasn't so it's situations like that that make me have less faith in the system and I think like at least have the dialogue with me like I was I was so scared I just wanted to like fit in in my own way I was new to care I saw my foster sisters like sort of doing this and not to like be cliche but it is like peer pressure as well and like again like why just demonize someone for for doing something that's so youth oriented something that we all would have done you know like oh a young person wants to go to a party like what young person doesn't exactly exactly right oh god i'm so tired of these meetings with the ministry and like you know with like the agencies and we're just repeating ourselves over and over again they know what the story is they hear us they have heard us and they forced us to repeat ourselves for like decades for years now they just want to say that we actually went to the meeting and talked to them like they they, that's all they want that's that's what it seems like and it's it's not on an ongoing basis it's like sort of one-time annual thing and just to say they they've gotten their hands clean and they've done what they could you need the lived experience quite often you need someone in the room that has lived it every single time not on the rare occasion 100 percent. that's why i I, this is legitimately why i created this podcast because i'm so tired so sick and tired of just constantly hearing the same things from a bunch of youth it's like Mm. almost like i mentioned before a duplicate story a system of accountability basically that's just it I want to say our piece once and then give this back to the agencies and tell them to listen to this. Then don't ask us any more questions. Well, <laughs> no, sure. But let's it's just, true. Let's just not talk anymore and let's just work. Let's actually let's put in put action in action. place. I agree. I know season two is going to look very different for us because we're going to be having these conversations with professionals to be able to gain a perspective of what it's like from their side. Mm-hmm. And once we have a vision, once we fully understand the structure, the operations, mm-hmm. the policies, bylaws, the um, procedures and everything that they have to follow and abide by, we could then say, you're still missing gaps here. This is how we could take our story and tell you the okay, you know, this is missing. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I think that that conversation is going to be amazing. The fact that, you know, you're actually thinking about having like policymakers and change makers come on. I mean, we are that in ourselves. Everyone that's been on the podcast so far has been, but people on the other side of the coin too, to really bridge that and unite that is going to be so great. When people study child and youth work, when they go to college, sometimes they're not in it just to help people they're in it because their parents want them to to go get an education and they're like oh this this could be fun this could be great they get into it there's no real real solid training it's like okay yeah you've gone to school for three years but you and maybe you've done an internship but you don't like what you do you don't unite with the youth you're doing it because it's a paycheck and your parents told you it's something to do and i've heard that i've heard that actually a couple times from people that had taken these college courses that have worked in shelters and in group homes. Yeah. And that's why, that's why these messed up things happen because we don't filter out these negative people. Oh my God. Thank you so much for like taking the time with me to talk. And 
um, I really wanted to ask you maybe like one or two questions before we actually officially head off. Just like questions that I typically ask everybody at the end of every episode. Um, there's two things that I wanted to know. One is, what is one thing that you know right now that you wish you knew while you were still in care? Oh, so going back to permanency, I, I wish that like, I knew I was worth it and that I knew I was worthy of love. Yeah. I wish I, I could have foreseen me being in the position I am now and having an amazing group of people around me like you and Project Outsiders that I actually feel like I can fully be comfortable in myself with and my family and my amazing friends. And I wish I knew that I had so much potential and I don't think when you're in care, you see so many people that are kind of falling through the cracks and you wonder if you're going to be one of those. That's what I wish I would have known. I appreciate that a lot as well. And if you right now had the option to attain one of anything in the world, it could just be, you know, mental clarity or um, all the knowledge in the universe or whatever, what do you think um, you feel like you could use right now to help you alleviate the effects of the foster care system? I think fundamental change. For me to see that like this isn't a repetitive cycle and it's not happening to many more youth, I think that would really, really help me. So I think that would be like the superpower I would, I would take. Um, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so happy I met you. I swear to God. You're just a beautiful person. Thank you. Thank you. You too. And I love the bucket hat. (laughs) Yeah, I wanted to try. The inside has like avocados stuff. That's so cute. I'm not cute. I'm sexy. The hat's cute, though. Sorry. The hat's cute. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, got off of Amazon. It's really dope. But thank you. Uh, God. I'm really happy I met you, too. And I'm happy that I, like, I know you learned a lot about me, but I'm so happy that I learned more about you, too, because, like, mm-hmm. I didn't know how, how many similarities we had, and I didn't know about your story as well. So thank you for sharing. Of course, of course. I will always be open to just like sharing myself with other people, people who I value, people who've experienced like very similar life situations to me. I hope you stick around for a long time. You're just, you know, part of my community. Well, you are. I definitely will. And we're gonna, you know, Christina, you and me, we're we're definitely gonna go get a bite to eat at some point. Gonna go hang out. That'd be so fun. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god, I'm in need. I'm in need of another glass. You finished your glass already? Well, thank you so much, listeners. If you made it to the end of this podcast, you are a trooper. We appreciate all of the support and the love that you show us. So until next time. 